Hello all, and for the final time in this series of the show, a warm welcome to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a show seeking out some of the more obscure and lesser-known cases of interest from the UK and Ireland. I'm Paul, the creator and host of the show, once again reiterating just how great it is having you guys join me here today, and I'm hoping that you're all well and good as you do so. So as I say, we've now reached the finale of the third series of the show before I have a few weeks break to recharge my batteries, restock the library, fill the chalkboard up again and hit the ground running with series four, which will be coming in just a few weeks. Season, series, the fourth lot of episodes of the show, basically. In the break, I'll still be about course prepping for the next lot, keep my hand in and chucking out two bonus Patreon episodes of the show throughout May. Big thanks to my returning and latest Patreon supporters of the show also, by the way. That's Laura Friedrich, Sean Patrick Allen, Rachel Cooper, Stephen Taylor, Julie Smallman and Karen Harris. Absolutely brilliant of you guys, that is, and your support is very much appreciated. Now, if you missed the show in the break, and of course, if you aren't already, then a rook of full-length bonus episodes are available, amongst other things, for you as a Patreon supporter. Supporting the show is very reasonable, very simple. You can just follow the ever-present link in the episode show notes or you can seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on the Patreon site and follow the instructions there. And before you know it, you too could be hearing the tale behind The War That Comes Home or The Bravo Two Heroes or The Strange Saga of the Wife in the Wicker Basket to name just but a couple of them. But there's a series finale to come before then and what a tale it is. The case that I've selected to finish off Series 3 really is one of the worst that I've ever come across. I know I say that quite often on the show, but trust me, this one really is. The geographical scale of it and the prolific nature of the offender is absolutely something else. And unlike other cases that we featured on the show, with this one, the exact number of victims we're talking about can't really be ascertained. It never will be. It's certainly suspected to number into the mid to late hundreds, if not thousands. With the known timescale that's involved, this isn't really too much of a jump to suggest. The case this episode involves a warped and callous individual who brought pure abject terror to a section of society that's more vulnerable than most, the elderly, for a period of almost two decades throughout the South and Greater London areas. The crimes involved are truly awful and the ones that are described within the episode are just some examples of them. There are that many to choose from to depict and those that have done have been done in a sanitised capacity with all other victims' anonymity maintained. As ever on the show, the episode this week contains descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting including descriptions of a sexual nature involving vulnerable people, so your discretion is as ever advised, folks. Bearing that in mind, for the last time this series, please join the true crime enthusiast as we head back to the early 1990s to South London to look at a case covered in an episode that I've entitled Minstead. The lady who lived in the bungalow just off the main A232 road passing through the area of Shirley in the South London borough of Croydon had lived in South London for most of her 89 years and had called the bungalow her home for the past decade. Having never married, in 1982 she'd moved into there to provide company for a recently widowed sister and for the next 10 years the sisters had given each other just that. 
Sadly though, just a few months into 1992 her sister had passed away and with only a niece living nearby, the lady had found herself alone in the property. Although she missed her sister, the place had over the time that she'd lived there become her home and refuge. She enjoyed a modest garden and would often when the weather allowed spend time sat in the front watching the bustle of suburbia going on just a few feet in front of the garden's short brick wall. She felt comfortable there, but most importantly, she felt safe there. It was dark just after 9pm on the evening of Sunday the 12th of October 1992, and the lady, we'll call her Miss A, decided to call it a night and head off to bed. After a routine evening ablutions, by 9.45pm she was tucked up in bed reading, as she did most nights to help her drift off to sleep. Miss A had a very modest room at the front of the property, no more than 11 foot square in area, and one that was sparsely furnished. In fact, it consisted of just a bed in the middle of the room, a bedside cabinet and lamp on one side, a chair on the other side, and a two foot high key lockable safe on the floor in the corner of the room, which contained a meagre amount of savings and some family heirlooms, nothing much of more sentimental value than monetary. Living by a bustling South London road, Miss A was used to hearing the sounds of suburbia at all times of the day and night, and she'd gotten used to it, like you would do eventually if you lived next to a railway line or under a flight path. So when she heard what she took to be a slight knocking sound, but could not discern exactly where it was coming from or what it was, she thought no more of it. Finding that evening though that she couldn't settle after reading, she decided to abandon her early night and went into the kitchen to make herself a cup of coffee. By this time it was fast approaching 10.30pm and she decided that she really should try to get off to sleep now. So she returned to bed and planned to read for a few minutes more hoping that she'd drift off. What Miss A couldn't possibly know as she did this is that unseen to her someone was watching the bungalow. Someone who'd performed reconnaissance on a number of occasions to ensure that an elderly person lived there alone. The watcher would look from afar at different places for signs that would show this. For example, handrails fixed near to the front door, ramp paths to allow easier access, a solitary milk bottle on the step, that kind of thing. Under cover of darkness, this would then extend further to them peeking through the windows to try and judge whoever it was that lived there but most importantly, that they were elderly and that they lived alone. The 89-year-old Miss A was perfect. Back in bed, she was just drifting off to sleep when she was suddenly aware of the door to a small bedroom opening slowly and a torchlight being shone into her eyes. In the blinding glare, she could just make out that it came from the figure of a man who was stood in the bedroom doorway. He entered the room and moved swiftly to her bedside, where Miss A could now see what must have been an absolutely petrifying sight. He was dressed head to toe in dark clothing, and over his head he wore a balaclava, showing nothing to her except his wide, staring eyes. Placing a gloved hand over her mouth, he told her in a whisper to be quiet, and eventually the terrified woman was able to ask him if he wanted money. He didn't answer her, but he took the £25 in cash that she offered him from her purse and then snatched a handbag from her. After emptying the contents out, 
He began walking around the room, checking various letters and papers that were lying about, and then he returned to her bedside, where he removed the light bulbs from the bedside lamp and ceiling light before doing the same in the 16-foot hall. He then pushed Miss A back onto the bed, where he began to remove her nightwear. Although she fiercely resisted and loudly cried out to him to stop, he tightly grabbed her head with both hands and began trying to kiss her. Gripping her head to hold it still while he kissed her, so tightly that her false teeth actually came out of her mouth, he then brutally raped Miss A. When he was finished, he spotted the safe on the bedroom floor and soon finding the keys that she'd hidden under her mattress, opened it and took the contents of £250 in cash, a number of rings and a hunter pocket watch. He then went and bolted the front door of the bungalow at the top and bottom, then went towards the kitchen and left through the back door. Although she was 89 years old and frail, Miss A managed to move some steps and replace one of the ceiling light bulbs, and then went to telephone for help, except that she couldn't do because the telephone line had been cut. With no other option, she managed to put on some clothes over her pyjama top and made her way out to her niece's home, who fortunately lived nearby. When her niece's husband answered the door, Miss A told him that she'd been burgled and had a telephone line cut, and was ushered in while police were called. Miss A, in a state of obvious distress and dishevelment, paced around the room and could not be got to sit down calmly. She then told her horrified niece that she'd been raped by the intruder. When police arrived, there was little further that the traumatised woman could tell them. The rapist had been masked and had spoken little throughout the assault. She thought he was about six feet tall and had noticed that he was dark-skinned with brown eyes, but understandably could not offer much more. A detective who went to her bungalow found Miss A's discarded pyjama bottoms on the bedroom floor, and as these were found to be semen-stained, they were bagged and sent for forensic examination. A window pane in the kitchen window of the property was found to have been the attacker's point of entry. It had been fully lifted out after the beading around the glass had been removed to effect this, and as Miss A had told her niece, the telephone line to the bungalow was found to have been cut from the outside. Meanwhile, as police were examining the bungalow, Miss A was being taken to a special suite that dealt with the victims of sexual assaults, which again, despite as much tact or compassion can be given in these circumstances, must be a further loss of dignity and it must cause even more distress. It certainly did to Miss A. A female detective constable, specially trained in dealing with victims of sexual assaults and experienced in cases such as these, was among the police who arrived in response to the report and accompanied Miss A throughout a routine medical examination at the suite to provide evidential swabs. She was later to recall, I saw a small, frail, elderly woman. She was clearly very upset and was shaking slightly. I remained with her and she cried throughout as she held my hand tightly. She was looking at the wall and the examination lasted 10 to 15 minutes and she then said to me, I wish I'd never reported it now. I had tears in my eyes as she said that to me. Miss A moved in with her relatives for several months following the assault, where she was markedly nervous at night and never wished to be alone. Afterwards, she moved into a first floor flat, 
which she immediately examined for its security. Her large living room window was never opened because it had a sloping porch roof below it, whilst the ceiling loft hatch in the property was also a constant source of worry for her. For the next 13 years, until she passed away in 2005, aged 102, she lived in a constant state of fear like this, never again spending a night in the bungalow that she'd loved and that had been her home and sanctuary. The actions of the man who had come to be known as the Night Stalker had made her simply not be able to face doing so. Now I won't refer to him as the Night Stalker through the episode, save any confusion with Richard Ramirez, plus I find it sensationalising the offender here, and believe me, that is something I am not willing to do. The account that you've just heard there, and I've no doubt it will have shocked, sickened and angered you, unbelievably is a very sanitised one. What you've heard isn't in any way meant to be sensational or ghoulish and it's certainly not done with any disregard for Miss A. It's put in the best possible way I could that tries to express the horror of that attack without bringing the listener to tears. We do all or nothing here on the show ever, don't we? But there is tact, of course. It was an awful, awful attack, almost beyond words in its depravity. But it's important to note in as much depth as possible at the onset of the episode because it marked the beginning, at least officially, of a series of crimes that was to stretch nearly two decades in total. It was the first attack attributed to one of the strangest, most prolific offenders the UK has ever known, one that the exact scope and number of his offending is not and probably will not ever be known. I've explained before on the show how I feel both about sexual offenders and crimes against the elderly, And the case this episode, I think, is up there with the most evil and horrific, perhaps even the most, that not only have I covered on the show to date, but that I've ever come across. It started pretty horribly, hasn't it? And I'm in no doubt that as the episode progresses, we'll see more of what I mean. So of course, Miss A's case was investigated, but there was very little to go on. The attacker had not been spotted entering or leaving the property, it left no fingerprints, and due to the darkness and Miss A's terror, plus the fact that he was masked, she couldn't give a clearer description of him except to say that he was a dark-skinned male. Although a forensic DNA profile of the rapist was obtained from the semen-stained pyjama bottoms discarded at the scene, the National DNA Database wasn't in force back in 1992, so there was no match to be found. All police could determine was that he was most likely an experienced burglar and was certainly now also a sexual offender and that someone who commits such horror as this needed to be caught and stopped. But with very little to go on, the case soon went cold. Six years later and seven miles away, he struck again. An 81-year-old arthritic and frail widow, living alone in a residential bungalow in a cul-de-sac in the village of Warlingham in Surrey, was awakened in the early hours of Saturday the 5th of September 1998 by a masked intruder who roughly shook her by the shoulders in a whisper demanding money. When the spirited woman told him in no uncertain terms what she thought of him, he gripped her tightly by the face, holding it in a vice-like grip for about a minute. He then ransacked the bedroom and house, searching through drawers and cupboards, before indecently assaulting the woman, although his attempts at rape were unsuccessful. Again, 
the assault is so appalling that it serves no purpose whatsoever to recount in full horrific detail here. Bizarrely, afterwards when the lady began having an attacker wheezing due to an existing medical condition that she had, the attacker placed the bedclothes and blankets back over her and felt both of her wrists for a pulse, leaving the house empty-handed when satisfied that she was alive. Exhausted by the ordeal, the widow actually fell asleep afterwards, but awoke some time later, waited for 15 minutes because she feared that he may still be in her home, and then went and closed the door that he'd left open when he fled. She noticed that nothing in the house was out of place, describing later that everything was as tidy as it had been before the attack. It was 7pm that Saturday evening before the lady summoned help. Victims of such assaults often don't act rationally due to trauma, fear, perhaps even sadly a generational belief that police might have better things to do and not wanting to cause a fuss. Indeed, she explained the delay that in reporting the crime later by saying that it had ended and all was well, bless her. But when it began to get dark that Saturday evening, she began to be afraid and telephoned his son to tell him exactly what had happened. He immediately contacted police who attended the scene and as she was taken to hospital for an examination to treat injuries to her face, her jaw and her wrist that had been inflicted during the assault, her nightclothes were seized for forensic examination and senior crime officers got to work at the bungalow. A backdoor key that was kept on a hidden hook on the fence outside to allow easy access for the lady's home help was found to be missing and although tool indentation marks were found on the frame outside the victim's bedroom and woolen glove fibres found on the inside frame, it was determined that the intruder had simply used this key to enter and had taken it away with him afterwards. Had he found it by chance or had he been surveilling the property for a while beforehand and he knew it was there? The victim could describe very little of the attacker except to say that he was a well-spoken male, dark-skinned with staring brown eyes. She described the assault and also how the attacker had checked both of her wrists for a pulse before leaving. Inside her bedroom, a stain on the carpet was swabbed and provided a sample of bodily fluids from the attacker, which a DNA profile was obtained from that when checked against samples entered on the by then in existence National DNA Database proved to be an exact match for the sample that had been obtained from the still unsolved Shirley attack six years before and just seven miles away. Police now knew that they had a strange serial burglar and rapist on the loose targeting the South London area, but the attacks were six years apart why the lull in offending, or were there countless other attacks during that period that had not been reported or recognised as being by the same man? A police operation codenamed Operation Minstead was now launched to catch the offender, named so using the custom at the time to codename police operations after country villages in an alphabetical order. It had by that time reached the letter M, and so the Hampshire village of Minstead the next one alphabetically down the line, was chosen as the operational name. Lovely village, I used to live relatively close to it some years ago. But none of the team involved in the investigation at that time could envisage just what the investigation would entail. 
For many, it was to be the most draining, time-consuming and defining investigation of their careers. And at that time, they knew very little about Minstead Man, as he came to be known by police, even though they had his DNA sample from two crime scenes. Although inquiries were made, the Minstead team soon hit a brick wall as each of these reached a dead end, until all they could do, awfully, was wait for the offender to strike again. In the summer of the following year, 1999, the rapist stepped up his campaign, extended his hunting grounds and terrifyingly increased the violence. On Sunday the 20th of June, a 71-year-old woman asleep in bed in a terraced house in the town of Beckenham in Kent was awoken by a heavy weight landing across her body. Her attacker held his gloved right hand over her mouth and nose and a torch shining in her eyes in the other and in her terror and panic, all she could make out over this was a masked figure dressed all in black staring into her eyes. Already struggling to breathe and struggling to free herself, the man then placed a pillow across her face and increased pressure upon it until the terrified woman ceased her struggling. He then told her in a whisper that he wanted money and began searching through her bedroom drawers by torchlight. As he did this, the woman reached across her bed and activated her panic alarm, managing to sound one quick blast of it. The intruder quickly snatched it away from her and destroyed it, and then told her, I want oral sex with you. Through her fear, the woman asked if she could go and get a glass of water from the bathroom before doing so, which she was allowed to do. As he led her there by the arm, she attempted to strike him in the groin with a glass, which she missed, but she did manage to knock the torch out from his hand. As he began to search for it on the floor, he dropped a scarf that he was wearing before fleeing, his normal routine disturbed. A forensic examination of the scarf was later to provide a DNA sample that linked to the other two known attacks of the Minstead rapist. An examination of the crime scene was to provide details that police would come to know all too well about its modus operandi, so much so that they were eventually able to recognise the scene of a Minstead attack without needing awaiting the results of forensic examination, these only serving when they came to confirm what police had already recognised. It was to become a familiar pattern. Always in the hours of darkness, the telephone lines to the property would be cut from outside and a single pane of glass would be removed from a window at the rear. Not smashed out, but the bead in holding the glass in place removed completely, and the pane slid out and placed carefully on the floor. This would facilitate the attacker's entry, and was often done using tools from the victim's own garden shed. Once he was inside, either the light bulbs would then be removed, or most commonly, the electricity supply to the house would be switched off. Dressed entirely in black and always masked and gloved, the intruder would then creep about the property and awaken the sleeping occupant by torchlight in their eyes. None of the victims was ever restrained in any way. He didn't feel the need to because they were all elderly and couldn't put up much resistance. Plus the shock of the situation and the darkness itself served to paralyse them with fear. He would then demand and take any amounts of money or jewellery that he found. But more often than not, he had only one thing in mind for his visit sex and his abuse of the elderly continued as that summer went on and wasn't even confined to females 
13 days after he was fought off in Beckenham, he struck again, this time in Colston in Croydon, where his next victim was an 83-year-old widower who lived alone, again in a bungalow. Suffering from Parkinson's disease, the widower rarely went out of his house due to failing eyesight and hearing, although he tried to maintain his independence as much as possible by going out to regular church meetings, trying to get out for a walk as often as he possibly could, and occasionally attending dinners for the Blind Association. In the early hours of Sunday the 3rd of July, he was awoken in the now usual fashion and asked for money. He was dragged through to the living room and struck hard several times about the head and body until he gave the intruder all of the money that he had in the house, just £17 in cash. He was then indecently assaulted before being battered again, including having a pillow placed over his face before the intruder finally left. His victim was so traumatised by the incident that he was to never spend another night in his bungalow. Instead, he was moved into a care home where still traumatised by fear, he died in September 2000. The rapist attacked at least twice more in Surrey in July 1999. I say at least because there may of course have been attacks that were never reported, and both attacks followed the now established pattern, with details that police could now add to the slowly growing file of what they knew about the rapist. Both attacks took place in bungalows once again, the rapist's favoured target of accommodation, and the victims in both were 82-year-old women. The now standard method of entry and behaviour was used in each attack, the descriptions were the same, although still vague, but in both of these attacks, the rapist showed a glimpse of a softer side, for want of a better word. In the first of the attacks, the rapist asked his victim if she wanted to have sex and although she of course refused, he indecently touched her anyway, first lifting his victim into a position where the assault would cause her minimal pain. He then allowed his victim to use the toilet when she'd asked, and she followed him around as he spent hours in the house, talking to her in a soft whisper as he walked from room to room, shining his torch in. At one point, he helped his victim into a chair, and even stopped to drink from a can of bitter that he'd brought with him which he left behind in the property. Before he left, he helped his victim out of the chair by lifting her by the elbow and the victim accompanied the attacker to the front door and thanked him for not hurting her. He actually shook her by the hand, gently pushed her inside and away from the door and was away, closing the door behind him. In the second attack, the victim was raped, but whilst he was doing so, her rapist whispered, Don't tell anyone. He then made her take off her nightdress because it was semen stained, which he placed into a sink filled with water, and then when she asked him why he'd done this to her, he was silent for a period. He then refused when offered to take a plate of coins by the door because the victim said they were for a church collection, gently kissed her on the cheek and said before leaving, I'm sorry, I will never do this again. He did though just six days later, attacking an 88-year-old widow in Croydon on the 3rd of August. This time, although he attempted to get his victim to touch his penis, she refrained and instead rebuked him by saying, What would your mother think of you if she could see you now? This did the trick because the intruder left without taking anything. He'd also once again drank in the house, this time from a miniature bottle of Campari that the victim had in her lounge and that the rapist left behind. 
DNA samples were obtained from both this bottle and the can of bitter that he'd left in the previous home that once tested were both found to match the Minstead rapists. But two days later there was no such grace from the man because in the town of Orpington in Kent he committed his most horrifying assault yet. Oh yes, believe me, this gets worse. The victim of this attack, an 88-year-old woman, was asleep in bed in the early hours of the 6th of August 1999 when she was awoken in the now usual fashion. A terrifying figure, masked and all dressed in black, standing at the foot of her bed shining a light in her eyes. He demanded money and was told that it was in the living room, but he demanded that she get up to show him exactly where it was, despite her pleas that she couldn't walk due to the osteoarthritis that she suffered with throughout her joints. He paid no regard to this, instead dragging her out of bed and frog-marching her to the living room, which she needed the use of two walking sticks to do so. After taking just £60, a photograph of her mother and an old bus pass photograph, he pushed her onto the sofa and brutally and disgustingly raped her. The exact details of the attack I won't repeat because they're so depraved, but when he was eventually satisfied, he went to the bathroom returned and threw his victim a towel to clean herself with and then raped her again. He then spent some time searching for a glove that he dropped during the assault and then left. Such were the severity of her injuries. It took the lady almost 40 minutes to crawl in agony on all fours to a chair nearby where at 3.37am she managed to alert a Carelink alarm service. Police and an ambulance who attended the scene following the alert by the Kaling operator who took the call from her found her sat in a chair covered in her own blood. It was later found to be from a ruptured bowel and she was rushed to hospital where she required emergency major surgery to parts of her body around the area of her waist and hips. She was in hospital for a month and then a nursing home for a further two months. Though she did recover quite well physically from the surgery, she had some difficulty adjusting to its lasting after-effects, and mentally she was never to get over the assault. How would you even begin to with something so appalling such as that? Like so many of his victims, she was also never again to spend time in the bungalow that had been a home for many years. Instead, she spent the remaining seven years of her life in sheltered accommodation, before her death in 2006. Her niece said later, My aunt was largely independent and had a fulfilling life, and couldn't understand why somebody could come along and totally ruin her life. She had nightmares. Every time she closed her eyes, she could see a hooded black figure. In the end, she wanted to die and for people to leave her alone. Two years before she died, the lady bravely told of her ordeal to the Sunday Mirror newspaper. She described the assault, saying, Afterwards, he threw a towel at me to dry myself, then he came at me again. I said, No, please, can't you go to a prostitute? Why pick on an old lady of 88? But he did it again. Isn't that one of the most heartbreaking things that you've ever heard? I believe me, I debated long and hard about whether to describe that assault, even in the depth that I have, because it upset and sickened me so much. I'm sure you could probably tell. But if this is a case that you're unfamiliar with, I wanted something that, if it hasn't already, 
brought home just how much of a monster we are talking about here. Job done there, I think. Following this spate of attacks, though, the rapist went to ground, and he didn't surface again for almost three years. This began a repeating pattern. The Night Stalker, as the press had christened him following the reporting of his attacks by that time, would go to ground for long periods, often a number of years, where there were no more reported attacks or crimes that could be definitively linked to him, before resurfacing again and attacking in clusters over a scattered area of Greater London, particularly the Kent, Surrey and South London areas. These attacks followed suit as the ones described so far in the episode, again using the same MO and choice of victim, and it's only of scant comfort that none of these attacks were to reach the levels of violence and perversion as the previous one beforehand. Regardless, every police officer involved in the hunt for the rapist lived with the very real fear that as long as he was at large, he could easily cross the line into murder, or an elderly victim's heart could give way and they could die of literal fright during or after one of these assaults. In the interim period between attacks, Operation Minstead continued in earnest and had by now amassed a horrifying catalogue of crimes that the offender was responsible for. He'd struck in Kent, Surrey and South London, all attacks that were linked to the same man by DNA samples or his easily recognisable method of entry and together with the use of both a geographical and psychological profiler, police were now building up a picture of the rapist. They knew he was a black male aged in his early 20s to mid 30s who was physically fit, was an experienced burglar and was most likely to live somewhere within the cluster of where he was attacking. He wasn't coming down from Orkney each time to commit such horror, for example. He was always dressed in dark clothing and gloved, and always masked or with his lower face covered. He had a favoured choice of property to target, again which had been refined from his first known attack in 1992. The first known attack then had been a property that bordered a busy main road, but from then onwards, he always targeted properties in secluded, apparently secure, suburban side streets, all of whose rear gardens led onto other gardens or otherwise empty plots of land. Police believed that he spent considerable time beforehand watching the properties that he selected to make sure there was indeed an elderly person living there alone and to learn any routines of the occupant. From this vantage point, he could ensure that he couldn't be spotted once he broke in. His method of entering the property was also clearly established, removing the beading to remove an entire pane of glass from a rear window, and his behaviour once inside also followed a common pattern, disabling the electricity or removing light bulbs to ensure darkness, severing the telephone lines, and in later cases of his offending, placing a mobile phone out of reach of the victim, on top of a cupboard for example, to prevent the alarm being raised. He was disciplined and practiced like this in his offending and not once had he been reported as being spotted or chased off and had never left any fingerprints inside any of the crime scenes. But conversely, he showed a complete disregard for other forensic awareness. He'd left a footprint at one of the scenes that was later matched to be in a size 10 Nike Air Terra Contigo training shoe as well as multiple forensic traces He'd never used a condom in any of the attacks and had carelessly left a scarf at the scene of one of the attacks with the traces of his saliva on it, which they got DNA from, 
and several empty drink containers that he'd used at a number of other scenes. It was the second conundrum about the rapist's behaviour, because although he could be frequently brutal in his attacks, as we've heard, we've also heard how he sometimes showed perverse flashes of tenderness towards his victims, sometimes spending up to hours in the property talking to them, following them around as though he was trying to establish a relationship of sorts with his victims, it was suggested later. From these conversations, he several times mentioned needing to get down to Brighton and also told one victim that his mother had died four years previously and that the government had let her down anyway. We've also heard how he refrained from assaulting when he was challenged as to what his mother would think of him. In another attack, he refrained from attacking his elderly victim and fled simply because she began chanting the Quran at him and on other occasions it was almost as if he simply changed his mind once he was there and left of his own accord without taking anything or committing any assaults. In several instances, he was reported to have displayed behaviour such as checking the pulse of a victim, he'd placed his arm around a victim and rested his head tenderly on a shoulder, and had even shook the hand off and gave a kiss on the cheek to one, and had also showed glimpses of a conscience of sorts when he refused to take an amount of money when he learned it was for a church collection plate. Also, the occasions where he would just burgle the property and not attack the occupant were actually greater in number than the attacks where he would sexually offend. In many of the crimes committed by the offender, the occupant simply awoke the following morning to see that they'd been burgled and would find the familiar removed pane of glass in the back garden. Psychologist Dr Julian Boone, a forensic psychologist who worked with the police in the early days of the investigation to profile the offender, and who we've actually met before on the show in a couple of episodes last season, the milknote murder and blackmail brutality and baby food, suggested that the Minstead rapist was a gerontophile, a person who has a certain paraphilia where they seek out sexual gratification with the elderly. It was suspected that this perversion was sparked by a sexual encounter with an elderly person that the rapist had had when he was a boy, which he'd responded to and developed, and was now possibly fuelled by the offender working in the nursing or caring profession. Now police had already considered this, they thought that the rapist may be or have been employed as a carer of some sort, because he'd displayed knowledge of geriatrics when he was moving or seating some of his victims, he'd known to pick them up by the elbow for example and supporting the spine. And it would make sense if this was his particular kink that wouldn't it? It may also give him access to be able to know for sure where elderly residents lived alone, it was a very solid theory indeed. It was also considered that the rapist was in a grip of a compulsion and was actually ashamed of his actions. This gave one explanation for the gaps in offending for a period of sometimes several years and his sometime behaviour when he was directly challenged. By November 2001 though he was still at large and the number of police hunting the Minstead rapist had quadrupled with overall command of Operation Minstead being passed to Detective Chief Inspector Simon Morgan. A large number of lines of inquiry had been pursued and exhausted and a mass DNA screening of more than 3,000 possible suspects who lived in the target area and who couldn't be eliminated through other means was also carried out. Understandable because, after all, police had a multitude of the rapist's DNA to compare against. It wasn't on the National DNA database, so he hadn't been arrested, at least since 1995 anyway. 
Now it caused controversy this, with many who were asked to provide samples feeling that they were being victimised purely because of their skin colour and loudly complaining about it, but nevertheless the majority did comply with the request. But out of all the tests that were carried out, a match for the rapist's DNA was not found. A video detailing the known crimes, suspect description and methodology of the rapist was created, narrated by none other than good old Nick Ross himself, and was distributed amongst every police station in London, with all borough commanders instructed to ensure that all officers under their command had watched it and memorised the known characteristics of the offender, in case it triggered the memory of an officer who may have arrested such a suspect previously. Crime Watch itself was to issue several appeals over the years about the operation, and even featured a chilling reconstruction of one of the attacks that I still remember seeing vividly now so many years later. Some things do stay with you, don't they? But I was unfortunately unable to find the link to the reconstruction for the show notes. Even the legendary Red Card 74 couldn't source it, which is saying something coming from the normally sterling work of that son of a gun. The investigation was also heavily appealed in the press, with guidelines issued to the general public, aimed specifically at the elderly, about brushing up on their personal and home security, checking locks and investing in panic alarms, that type of thing. It must have been an absolutely terrifying time for old folk down the Greater London area back then, mustn't it? I thought back to people like Kenneth Erskine and Michael Roberts when I was writing the episode. Two similar offenders and the horrors that they inflicted in the areas who were both coincidentally in South London as well. And their tales are both ones that we've heard on the show in past series. Stockwell Strangler and the Beast of Bermondsey for you pot pickers. But there was only a vague physical description of the offender and although his handiwork was now easy to recognise, the scattered cluster of the known attacks and the random days and times that they occurred on made it impossible to predict where he was going to strike next. Though as the years passed, a map of the attack points did manage to suggest to police that he had favoured areas, particularly the Croydon and Bromley areas. This was to be a crucial focus of the investigation much later down the line. But at the time, the focus was firmly on the rapist's DNA, and police also now opted to use a forensic technique known as ancestral DNA searching, which had not at the time been used in the UK. DNA samples from the combined Minstead attacks were sent to a US laboratory, DNA Print Genomics, in Florida, where they carefully analysed the attacker's DNA profile and managed to break it down into no less than 177 different parts or markers. The combination established found that the rapist's DNA comprised of 82% sub-Saharan, 12% Native American and the remaining 6% European, a combination that was found to have originated from the Caribbean, thought most likely to have been one of the Windward Islands of Trinidad and Tobago, St Lucia or St Vincent. Perhaps the increasingly lengthy gaps in his attacks meant that the offender didn't spend all of his time in the UK, had he gone home, if you like, during these periods. Narrowing it down to the Caribbean alone allowed police to reduce the suspect list again by several thousand, and faced with these results, police hoped to be able to pinpoint this even further by taking voluntary tests from Scotland Yard staff who originated from various parts of the Windward Islands, and then comparing these with the rapist's DNA purely to try and identify which island 
possibly even which town he originated from that may narrow down the suspect list even further. Makes sense that, doesn't it, don't you think? It would be unusually reliable taking samples for regional elimination from serving police officers who had no reason to disguise their backgrounds, and at least 50 officers agreed instantly to assist in this. But surprisingly, the Black Police Association kicked up a fuss about this when its Metropolitan branch complained that this practice did not apply to white officers, and after legal consultation, the Yard decided that they didn't wish to go ahead with it without the backing of the BPA, who'd set this store out, as we've just heard. So this was a line that was at first not pursued, despite several published quotes from officers who'd volunteered to do so, expressing their frustration and disappointment at the decision. And I have to say that I would agree with them completely. Common sense and decency says that whatever could have been done, every step possible to get this man off the streets should have been, regardless of nanny state or such absolute bollocks political correctness, doesn't it? It's ludicrous, that is. What may have influenced the decision, though, were press reports that the force had been accused of sending threatening or intimidatory letters to black males in the South London area who'd refused to provide a DNA sample in the initial trawl of suspects in the age range that the rapists belonged to, following the onset of Operation Minstead. It was claimed that those who'd refused to provide a sample, by no means either a large percentage of those targeted, it should be added, had been subsequently sent a letter by the Met, basically saying that the rapist was of course likely to refuse a sample, and catching him would be a lot easier if he was the only one to do so, telling them that they would be reviewing the circumstances surrounding their initial refusal to provide a DNA sample, and would notify them of their decision in due course. In the meantime, it asked them to reconsider the decision. It was reported that several arrests were also made concerning this. The exact number can't be substantiated, nor any record of any charges that were brought. But by arresting, this of course provided police with at least some of the DNA samples that had been refused to be provided. The DNA screening angle has always been a very controversial aspect of the entire investigation, and I can kind of see both sides about it really. I can understand that for a variety of reasons, many people don't trust or like the police due to bad experiences that they may have had, and they have no wish to assist them, and I can understand also people defending their rights completely. But I can of course equally see the logic in the subsequent letter that was reportedly sent out to those who'd refused to give a sample, although it can perhaps be interpreted as using strong arm tactics and may have been poorly worded. And tactics such as that don't really make for good community relations between the police and the public, do they? But then again, if it could maybe go a small part of the way to help catch someone responsible for such horror, then the idealist in me likes to think that people would do all that they could to help take such a creature off the streets. And the DNA was understandably for many years the main focus of the investigation. The profiles of thousands of suspects were compared and amassed over the years that this man was at large, and he didn't show up once, not through a direct or a familial DNA match. One senior officer involved with the investigation is reported to have checked the National DNA database on a daily basis in case a match had been entered from a suspect who'd been recently arrested. Detectives even went to visit the Caribbean islands chasing the DNA line up to no avail. 
Several appeals were still made in the press, photo fits of what it was believed the rapist could look like were included, and the investigation was featured several times on Crime Watch UK as we've said over the years that this man was still at large. Whilst all this went on, the Minstead rapist would attack again and again in periodic clusters, striking at the home of a 77-year-old woman in the Shirley area in October 2002, before an eight-month gap until he returned to attack twice on the same night, 9th of June 2003. Here, he half-smothered an 84-year-old woman in West Croydon before leaving with a small amount of cash, and on the same night burgled the home of a 75-year-old woman in Addiscombe. Another break of two months then followed, before he returned and indecently assaulted a 66-year-old woman in her home in South Croydon on Saturday the 23rd of August. They followed a break of more than a year in attacks after this, before he again resurfaced in September 2004, striking twice in 11 days in Bromley. He struck in Wellin on the 18th of October, and then returned to the Croydon area the following month on the 20th of November. In each of these attacks, the intruder took cash, and although he didn't commit any sexual assaults in these instances, he did spend hours in the properties talking to each of the victims. After a single attack in Croydon in January 2005 and a burglary the following month, the Minstead rapist went to ground again, this time for almost two years. By September 2006, Operation Minstead had become the largest hunt for a serial rapist that Scotland Yard had ever mounted, and they'd linked a total of 97 known offences to the offender, several sexual assaults and rapes that were linked by his DNA, and the remaining that were linked by other forensic comparisons, such as recognisable tool marks that were found on the outside of the properties, and the methodology of the rapist. As I said, his handiwork was easily recognisable by that time. A £40,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of the offender was up for grabs by this time, but it was so far unclaimed. In November of that year, the investigation was once more featured on Crime Watch UK as a reconstruction, this time including a distressing audio tape of a 999 call made by one of the victims to fully bring home the horror of the attacks, in case that was needed like. Without revealing full details of the attacks in order to save scaring elderly residents of his target areas any more than they undoubtedly already were, as much as could be operationally revealed that was known about the man to date was included in the appeal, including photo fits of what he was suspected to look like, locations, dates and times that he'd attacked, and consistent behavioural details that he'd displayed throughout the series of his offending. The rapist was even addressed directly in the appeal by Detective Chief Inspector Morgan, who told him, In 1999 you raped an 88-year-old lady and she suffered a perforated bowel. Very sadly, she died only recently, but she lived the last years of her life in absolute agony because of what you did. You know that this has to stop, and you know that you have to come forward and hand yourself in to police. Now, he didn't come forward and do this, but appealing to his conscience if he had one, did serve to make him go quiet again until May 2008, where he returned and struck at least three times and committed two sexual assaults in the Norwood and Bromley areas. 
He struck again in August of that year in West Wickham, twice more in the same area in November, and by June 2009, he broke into no less than nine homes in a two-week period, taking his suspected total of attacks to 25 that year alone. Police noticed that by this time he'd also began to be less driven by sex and more towards financial gain from his victims, resulting in the alarming escalation in his offending, but as a result, he was becoming less cautious and was even caught on CCTV for the first time in 17 years, twice in two months attempting to use a victim's bank card at the same ATM machine in the early hours of the morning at Honor Oak Park. The footage that was released to the press, taken at 3.51 on the morning of the 13th of August 2009, revealed a male in white trainers dark trousers, dark blue anorak, scarf and woolly hat who was careful to shield his face from the camera. There's a picture on the show's Instagram page showing a still of the offender from this CCTV. Despite this, even though a dedicated team of 29 police officers and staff still continued to hunt him down from the Minstead operational room at Lewisham Police Station, he remained at large. It was now time for a different focus for the investigation. Ex-Detective Chief Inspector Colin Sutton is long since retired from the Metropolitan Police now, but back in mid-2009 he was handed operational control of the then long-running Operation Minstead. High profile and lauded for being the officer who had recently led the successful hunt for serial killer Levi Belfield, good episode about who is on the No Remorse podcast, by the way. DCI Sutton soon decided that just waiting round for a match for the rapist's DNA to arrive was getting the team nowhere fast. It had been 17 years now, and this guy had to be stopped, so a different tack was needed. It was now that police refocused on the sites of where the offender was confirmed to have struck, and plotting each point on a large-scale map of the Greater London area, soon revealed a pattern of several areas where he seemed to favour targeting, including the areas of Orpington and Bromley in Kent, and the area of Shirley in South London, where he'd first struck 17 years before. In the latter, he'd struck several times, including three times on the same street. Deciding that this was a significant area, DCI Sutton put in a request for a strictly covert surveillance operation that involved 150 officers, 18 hidden cameras and an infrared equipped helicopter to observe this region for a period of time, thinking that they may just catch their man in the act returning to a favoured hunting ground of his. This was agreed by Met Chiefs, although Sutton was only allowed half of the manpower and equipment that he'd requested. An area of about a square mile around the Orchard Avenue and A232 Wickham Road area of Shirley was eventually selected for the focus of the surveillance operation, covering an area where the offender had struck a number of times over the years, and by the night of the 29th of October 2009, the operation was launched, with 70 undercover police officers installed at several vantage points around the area, in cars, empty properties, even up trees. The operation showed promise almost immediately, because on the first night of observations, the offender struck three times in this area, but each time frustratingly, just slightly out of the targeted surveillance areas. To say police had mixed emotions about this would be an understatement. 
Imagine how gutted you would have been to have been so close to the guy on that night. But conversely, what a boost it must have been after such a long-running investigation to know that you were on the right lines and this was a real solid line of inquiry. It wasn't all wasted either from that first night, because a painstaking search of CCTV around the areas of the attacks on the night in question eventually showed the grainy image of a male figure at 5.12am running to a vehicle parked in nearby Regency Walk, a road very close to Orchard Avenue, then driving off at high speed before heading north onto Orchard Avenue itself. It was impossible to determine the registration of the vehicle or gain a clear description of the man, although it was noted that he appeared to be dressed all in dark clothing. Painstaking analysis of stills of the image eventually determined the likely vehicle to have been a Vauxhall Zafira model, possibly grey in colour. Was this the offender in his car caught on CCTV? Police were to find out 17 days later when they caught the Minstead rapist. Just before midnight on the night of Saturday the 14th of November 2009, Met Police Detectives Richard Jenkins and Nathan Coots were part of the surveillance team ensconced in an empty house in the Freshfields area of Shirley, when they noticed a man running from the direction of number 70, heading towards a vehicle, getting in and shooting off like a meatloaf album. The vehicle was a brand new dark grey Vauxhall Safira, registration number LV09, GUC, and remembering the suspect vehicle that was sighted on CCTV on the 28th of October, DC Jenkins was on the radio instantly, alerting other undercover officers in the area to the sighting. Several teams of mobile undercover officers immediately set out to find and follow the vehicle, and when the vehicle was spotted and responding police got into a position to box it in, it was stopped at 12.15am on Whittam Road in the nearby district of Beckenham. Detective Constable David Matthews was the first officer to approach the vehicle and found the sole occupant to be a black middle-aged male sitting calmly and quietly in the driver's seat. Although the door of the vehicle was locked, the window was down and as DC Matthews reached in and took the keys from the ignition, he noticed that the driver's trousers were unbuttoned and partially open at the front. Getting out of the vehicle at the officer's direction, the driver initially identified himself as Kelvin Grant, but then a credit card was found in the central console of the vehicle with the name D. Grant on it. Asked once again what his name was, he said Delroy Easton, and then admitted his name was Delroy Easton Grant. Asked what he was doing out that evening, he replied that he was out to meet a contact of his to buy cannabis from him, but the dealer had not turned up, and he'd left. He was arrested and handcuffed and a search of his person revealed a torch in his left trouser pocket and £97.12 in cash in his right. The vehicle, however, revealed much more when it was searched. A black woollen hat was found in the glove compartment along with black woollen gloves, a scarf, a blue cagoule, a set of pliers, a pair of bolt cutters and a crowbar. Police were now growing more convinced by the second that they'd finally caught the Minstead rapist at last, and whilst the vehicle was impounded to the police pound in Croydon for forensic examination, Grant was taken to Lewisham Police Station where his clothing was seized for examination. He was found to be wearing shoes with no socks, two pairs of jeans and underpants, and three shirts, 
which he at that time refused to explain why. Maybe it was really cold or I doubt it, but yeah. He was then cautioned once more before fingerprints were taken from him. Here, Grant remarked to the officer who was conducting the fingerprinting, I don't know why you're bothering, I always wear gloves. He was to later claim that this had been said in jest. Two DNA swabs were then taken from Grant and fast-tracked to the Forensic Science Service at Lambeth for fast comparison, with police by now convinced that they had the Minstead rapist in custody. In the eight hours it took to make a fast-track comparison between Grant's DNA and those found at the scenes of the Minstead attacks, he steadfastly maintained a no-comment stance throughout interview until at 10am the following Sunday morning, the results from the Forensic Science Services came in. Delroy Easton Grant's DNA was a one-in-one-billion match for the Minstead rapists. Police had finally caught him. On Monday the 16th of November 2009, Grant appeared at Greenwich Magistrates Court charged with five counts of rape, six indecent assaults and 11 counts of burglary between 1992 and 2009. The crimes linked to the Minstead attacker that the evidential DNA profiles were strongest from. He appeared twice more in court following this to be remanded in custody and in June 2010 he appeared at the Old Bailey where the full indictment and list of charges was read to him. It took Grant 15 minutes to reply not guilty to each charge, following which he was remanded again and committed for trial at Woolwich Crown Court in March 2011. You absolutely won't believe the defence he was to offer. On the 3rd of March 2011, Grant appeared in the dock in front of Mr Justice Rook QC in court number 3 of Woolwich Crown Court, where as we've heard, he pleaded not guilty to each charge before him. Prosecuting counsel Jonathan Laidlaw, described rather dramatically in the press before Anders, the country's leading prosecutor, took the jury of seven men and five women through step by step in a detailed comprehensive account of the crimes Grant was accused of, highlighting the evidence against him. Now it could take an absolute other episode alone to just recount the full ins and outs of the trial exactly, but for those who are interested, and it is a fascinating read, the definitive account can be found in the book concerning the case, The Night Stalker, a link to which will be in the episode show notes. Here I'll just summarise it really, because the circumstantial evidence alone that the Crown had against Grant was pretty conclusive, but the forensic was very definite. Yet it's still worth noting the lengths that Grant was to go to to try and save his own skin and explain this off. Firstly, the jury heard the account of the night of Grant's arrest, the list of items discovered in his Vauxhall Sephira, and that he was wearing what was described as a burglar's kit of two pairs of jeans, two pairs of boxer shorts, three short and long-sleeved t-shirts, and shoes but no socks. This would have allowed him to change appearances quickly when fleeing from the scene of attacks, vital in case he was spotted on CCTV footage unlikely to have been because he'd been decorating as Grant was to try and later claim that's why he was dressed like that. I had a vivid image of that episode of Friends when Joey put all of, what's his name, can't remember his name now, the guy's clothes on. 
They were told of his no-comment stance throughout his countless interviews, how he'd offered nothing, no hint whatsoever of a genuine defence. They were told about his remark in jest about always wearing gloves, and were then taken through in detail each of the charges Grant was facing, hearing the horror and trauma that each victim was put through from their own statements. And finally hearing that the DNA evidence recovered from the scenes and from the victims themselves of at least 12 of these attacks was a 1 in 1 billion match for Grant. So how did Grant try and explain this off? Firstly, it was reported that four days after his arrest on the 19th of November 2009, he was seen in his cell, not under interview conditions I must stress, but because he was simply being provided with deodorant. And whilst they were doing so, he hinted to officers that although he didn't want to fit anybody up, they may wish to go and look at his son as a possible suspect, Delroy Jr., who is of the same build as Grant, and of course, conveniently, of a similar DNA profile. Now of course, there's familial DNA, and there's unique DNA to the individual that only they could have left. So it's not working, that one, dickhead. Police did test Delroy Jr. as a matter of elimination following these claims, and as well as eliminating him completely, it served only to show the desperation Grant was facing and the lengths that he was prepared to go to. He was to stoop even lower and to more ludicrous levels at his trial though. Called as a witness at the trial, the crux of Grant's defence was that he was the victim of an extraordinary and intricate frame-up orchestrated by none other than his first wife, Janet Watson, who he'd seen just once in the more than 30 years since they'd divorced. Grant alleged that over 30 years before, Janet must have collected and saved several samples of his bodily fluids, his saliva and semen, and then to satisfy the grudge that she held against him, had conspired with a male friend of hers to attack random elderly women and using a syringe and a sponge to leave Grant's DNA at the subsequent crime scenes and on the victim's person. Yes, seriously. He was absolutely shot to pieces with this load of bollocks though because Mr Laidlaw put to the jury that to accept this as a credible line of defence it would mean that Janet had to have obtained and kept usable samples that she stored for an inexplicable period of 13 years before first using them then waited for another inexplicable gap of five years in an intricate plan that would have had to have been born at least four years before the discovery that every different individual has a unique genetic code. She would have also had to have persuaded a male friend of hers to have become a practised serial burglar and attacker on and off over a period of 17 years, who also managed to do this by never leaving a single trace of his own DNA at any of the scenes, just to frame her ex-husband from 30 years before. Janet Watson rightly denied these ludicrous claims, despite a spirited cross-examination from Grant's defence barrister, Mr Courtney Griffiths QC. I'm sure that you'll be unsurprised to learn, really. This was the extent of Grant's defence. He gave evidence himself and told a right load of old tosh when he was doing so. He couldn't satisfactorily explain countless points that he was questioned upon regarding obviously impossible discrepancies in his defence. And some of the answers that he did give to certain questions stretched credibility so much that more than once Mr Laidlaw asked him if he was being serious. 
He apparently was because even as his evidence drew to a close, Grant said, I am not the Minstead offender. At 3.05pm on the afternoon of Tuesday the 22nd of March, the jury retired to consider its verdict. Surprisingly, it wasn't the same day that they returned, nor the next. It was the morning of Thursday the 24th of March that they returned and delivered a majority verdict of 10-2 of guilty on all 29 charges Grant was facing, a verdict that took the foreperson of the jury more than 15 minutes to deliver. The following morning, back in court number 3 in front of a public gallery packed with relatives of his unfortunate victims, Grant was in the dock again to hear his sentence. Issuing him four concurrent sentences of life imprisonment with a minimum term to serve of 25 years, 236 days, Mr Justice Rook told Grant, Your utter depravity knows no bounds. You will only be released if the parole board considers it safe to do so. I have no doubt you are a very dangerous man capable of committing heinous crimes and causing incalculable harm to people. It's a matter for the parole board that if you will ever be released, it may be that you will never be released. Your offending is in a league of its own. It certainly is, isn't it? And Grant is unlikely to ever be released, which is a bloody good job too, by the sounds of it as well, eh? To me, personally, if any justification were needed to ensure that a monster like Grant is never released, despite age, despite illness, anything, it comes from the quote of an unnamed victim of his, now sadly long since passed. Following his sentencing, she's reported as saying, Thank you so much for telling me I can go back to sleeping at night and being awake in the daytime. There's no words really for that, is there? But following the trial, it was to emerge that, shockingly, police had had chance to stop Grant a full ten years before they caught him and missed the opportunity. In May 1999, a member of the public witnessed a man acting suspiciously near the scene of what turned out later to be one of Grant's burglaries in Bromley. Noticing the man getting into a dark-coloured BMW car, the witness noted the registration number and passed on details to the local police. When DVLA records were checked against the vehicle details, it was established that the BMW belonged to one Delroy Easton Grant of 19 Broccoli Mews, South London. Officers in Bromley noticed that the break-in bore a number of similarities to the Minstead attacks, so they referred this information onto the Minstead Operation Room at Lewisham. However, a breakdown in communication or some kind of mix-up when a check upon what information was known about the suspect occurred and details of the wrong Delroy Grant were accessed. Instead of the man who 12 years later was finally convicted of some of the worst crimes in British criminal history, the investigating team focused upon another man with a similar name. He, unlike Delroy Easton Grant, was already on the National DNA Database, which had been checked to death, of course, as we've heard, and so police working on the Operation Minstead team therefore ruled out the name Delroy Grant from the investigation. Further, instead of independently investigating the local break-in, officers based in Bromley assumed that the Minstead team were investigating and so never bothered to follow up the registration plate information themselves. If they had, they would have found themselves face to face with a Minstead rapist, and if he'd been arrested in connection with the Bromley burglary, 
his DNA would have automatically been taken and a match to the Minstead attacks made there and then. A spokesperson for the Independent Police Complaints Commission said later that two officers had been disciplined as a result of this coming to light and that it was a simple misunderstanding which had horrific consequences. Horrific consequences indeed when you think that following that mistake Grant went on to cause terror, loss and misery on at least another 146 known occasions before he was finally arrested in 2009. Three more elderly women were raped, 20 further victims were sexually assaulted and another 123 were burgled. Two years after this close shave as well, Grant once again reaped the benefits of the earlier police negligence when a viewer watching an appeal about the Minstead rapist on Crime Watch UK contacted the studio to inform police about suspicions that they had concerning an individual living in South London. The name that the person offered to detectives was one Delroy Grant. Of course, when the name was cross-referenced against the Operation Minstead files, detectives saw that Delroy Grant had already been eliminated from their inquiries and moved on to the next suspect, and another possible opportunity was missed. The guilty Delroy Grant was never even spoken to in person by officers. Following Grant's conviction, it led to a public apology being issued by Metropolitan Police Commander Simon Foy, who when asked if his officers had ever spoken to the right Delroy Grant, categorically replied, No, there was an opportunity to have identified and apprehended Delroy Grant, but that opportunity was missed. When this came to light after his arrest, we referred this matter to the IPCC. The wrong person was eliminated at that time. He then added, the Met now need to apologise for this missed opportunity that led to his continued offending. We are deeply sorry for the harm suffered by his other victims and the failure to bring Delroy Grant to justice earlier. Missed opportunities indeed, that isn't it? And what of the central figure in the whole shocking story, the Minstead rapist himself? What's his tale? Delroy Easton Grant was born in his parents' modest house in Spanish Town Road in the Jamaican capital of Kingston on the 3rd of September 1957, the son of market trader George Grant and a domestic worker known only as Vida. The couple split shortly after Delroy was born and his mother moved to start a new life in America when he was two, having no future contact with the boy. His father, already having two other sons by two other women, came to the UK to make a new life shortly afterwards, and young Delroy was raised in Kingston from the age of four by his paternal grandmother, Blanche Grant. Over in the UK, George went on to form a relationship with a woman named Ruby, who he was to go on to marry, and eventually they settled into a small terraced house in East Dulwich at the beginning of the 1970s. It was about this time that Delroy, proving too much for his ageing grandmother to handle, also made the trip over to the UK to live with his father and stepmother and went on to attend Kingdale School in West Dulwich, a move that the deeply Christian George Grant hoped would be a fresh start for Delroy and would give the youngster a better chance in life than if he remained on the violent streets of Kingston. It wasn't to be though. 
Grant was academically a non-starter, showing little interest in school, instead preferring to play cricket and Bob Marley records at all levels. I can't think of anything worse. I can't actually bear reggae. It drives me round the bend. Upon leaving school in 1973 with no qualifications, Grant found a job working as a mechanic on a garage forecourt, but also began his criminal career around this time finding himself in Tower Bridge Magistrates Court on numerous occasions in 1974 and 75 for false accounting and car theft. But despite his criminal activities and his academic empty wallet, he had good looks, charm and a friendly nature, and as a result was always popular with girls, undoubtedly helped by his status at the time of being a DJ operating a reggae sound system named Sir Cosmic Sound. One girl that he proved very popular with was a 19-year-old single mother named Janet Watson, who he met in a pub in Bermondsey in 1975. She was instantly smitten with Grant and said later, I really thought I'd found my Prince Charming. Grant took her out on a date the following evening, and within a week had moved in with Janet and her young daughter. Within three months of them first meeting, the couple had married in October 1975 at St. Lawrence Church in Bromley. But almost immediately though, Janet was to realise what a big mistake she'd made. She found out that Delroy was a domineering presence in the house who was quick with his fists and would fly into an almost maniacal rage if the house wasn't always spotlessly clean or was even a bit untidy, even thinking nothing of attacking her savagely when she was pregnant with the couple's first child over the trivial matter of watermarks being left on the cutlery after she'd washed up. The abusive relationship lasted for a couple of years and produced two children, Delroy Jr. in February 1976 and Michael in October 1978. But by 1980, when Grant was sentenced to two years imprisonment for his part in a post office raid, Janet saw sense and filed for divorce from him, which he didn't contest at all, not having seen the family actually since he'd walked out on them in early 1979. Janet was to see Grant again only twice over the next 32 years, once when her two sons by him tracked him down many years later wishing to meet their father, and the next time following that was when she was nonsensically accused by him at his trial at Woolwich Crown Court of stealing, storing and using his DNA samples in the intricate revenge-motivated plan to frame him for being a serial rapist and burglar. Remember the complete load of bollocks we heard before. When Grant was released from prison in 1982, he was to continue his criminal career and would in time receive two more prison sentences this time suspended ones in 1982 and 1985 for handling stolen goods. He also began a relationship around this time with a woman named Rosemary Burrell, fathering a daughter named Samantha with her, before he met and began having an affair with a woman named June Finley, who lived in Leicestershire. Now how Grant met her isn't reported, but he was to move up to Leicestershire for the remainder of the 1980s, and he went on to have three children with June. He's a bit like Ken Barlow, this guy, actually. He also had a few scrapes with the law during this period, and quite tellingly, a period of community service for one of these scrapes was spent working in a care home. After a short prison sentence for handling stolen goods in early 1991, and by this time tiring of June, 
When he was working as a building contractor in London, he met a devout Jehovah's Witness and mother of two daughters named Jennifer Edwards, whom he then began having an affair with. He was soon to leave June and set up home with Jennifer back in South London, where they married at Lewisham Registry Office in November 1991. Jennifer and Grant went on to have two sons themselves, taking the total number of children that he'd fathered to eight. By all accounts though, he was devoted to Jennifer, and after the couple had moved into the three-storey property, 19 Broccoli Mews, in a quiet cul-de-sac in Broccoli in south-east London, Grant finally appeared to settle down to family life with Jennifer, their two sons and her two daughters from a previous relationship. Several friends and neighbours would after his arrest testify to the kind, helpful neighbour and devoted husband who was well known and liked in the local area, who always appeared smartly dressed and respectable, who kept fit by working out and weight training in his back garden, who had many friends and was well involved with the community and the local church. They told how Grant had many years before followed his wife's example and had become a devoted Jehovah's Witness himself and who gave up his various jobs such as painter and decorator and job in builder to throw himself into being Jennifer's primary carer and she sadly developed multiple sclerosis, supplementing the weekly carer's allowance that he was granted by minicabin at night. As her condition worsened, He'd even self-converted the garage of their home into a more easily accessible bedroom and living area for her. Old habits die hard though, and from 2004 until his arrest, Grant had been involved in a relationship with a woman named Barbara Stocks, a HSBC bank worker around the same age as him. As Jennifer's condition had worsened, Grant and Barbara's relationship had deepened, to the stage where he would often be spending a few nights each week at Barbara's house, 15 minutes away from the Grant home, where he could be at hand rapidly should Jennifer require him urgently in the night. Then it became so that he would sleep between there and his home in the daytime and be out all night. To both the unassuming Barbara and Jennifer, his absences on these occasions were explained by Grant claiming that he was out minicabbing. Many neighbours of his got used to seeing him heading off in his car late at night and returning at dawn the next day, but as he was known to be a cabbie, no one thought this anything out of the ordinary. But his nighttime movements often had far more sinister purposes, because in reality, as we've heard, he was trawling a 150 square mile area, seeking out targets, looking for signs of elderly victims living alone. This could be things such as old-fashioned furniture in the garden, ramps or rails that were attached to the side of a property, even down to the type of clothes that were hanging on the washing line and the number and type of shoes in a porch. If he didn't do this at night whilst alone, then evilly, he even managed to reconnaissance likely properties on the various occasions that he took Jennifer to several Jehovah's Witness meetings in various areas around Greater London, or when they went out door-knocking doing this. Unknown of the number of times that he did this, and who would really look twice at, or suspect, a devoted husband pushing his disabled wife in a wheelchair, who were both Jehovah's Witnesses, who would suspect someone like that, having the kind of horror in his mind that Grant did. No one who knew him would have, for sure. His entire family were left devastated and shamed by the revelations. Every single friend or neighbour of Grant's was left totally shocked to the core 
with some even still struggling to believe now that the man they'd often shouted mourning to or had a pint with in the local could lead such a double life and was revealed as one of the most prolific, strangest and chilling criminals in British criminal history. One who'd struck so many times and instilled such fear that it was summed up best by one elderly victim of his who said after his trial, I've spent the last 15 years fearing every knock on the door and every bump in the night. That man might be safely behind bars now, but terror of the outside world is now ingrained into me. I've forgotten what it is to feel safe. Do you see what I mean about this being one of the most awful cases to date on the show, if not the most awful? Long-time listeners will know exactly my feelings about people who target vulnerable members of society, as I've said, but to me, there is just something about targeting the elderly that is extra evil. To instill so much fear in an area that old people were forced to sleep through the day because they were too afraid to sleep through the hours of darkness in case they were attacked. Aren't these just terrible, foul crimes? And during the disgusting attacks, even just the burglaries, well, it's hard to imagine the fear that must have gone through each victim's mind being awoken by such a terrifying sight and such actions that have been described here. The majority of people that Grant terrorised during his prolonged series will have sadly now gone to their graves, a number of them even before he was caught and brought to justice. But I hope those who did get to see him convicted spent their remaining years feeling somewhat safer in the knowledge that he could never return to terrorise them or anyone else ever again, instead being locked away, most likely never to be released. It is also most likely that the true extent of Grant's offending will never be known. There may have been countless other burglaries or attacks that weren't reported or recognised as his handiwork and many victims may have gone to their graves taking his terrible secret with them out of fear or shame perhaps. I do find it hard to believe that someone can be so prolific and compulsive over clusters of periods, then have periods where he just stops and does absolutely nothing, apparently for years, so it's my opinion that he has committed countless other crimes, and it doesn't necessarily suggest that they might not even specifically be in the Greater London area, crimes have never been attributed to him. One report suggests that he may even have started attacking as early as 1987 in South London, being an accomplice of an equally degrading specimen named John McGlynn, who's currently serving a 15-year prison sentence for raping an 88-year-old widow. But there's no evidence backing this claim up, and Grant himself has certainly never spoken to police concerning any further attacks or had an attack of conscience and said, yeah, I was active here and here, I did this, I did that. Maybe he himself has even lost count of his offending. Who knows, and it would certainly be understandable given the scale and the time period that he was at large. He's never explained the genesis of his paraphilia for the elderly, or what exactly made him make the jump from petty criminal to full-on serial burglar and rapist, and he's never once expressed any remorse for the victims or his actions, or even admitted them even in the face of such overwhelming evidence that proved his culpability. Instead, he was just happy to go through a ludicrous defence involving his ex-wife defying science and space and time to fit him up, and he was even callous enough to try and suggest that his own son may be responsible for his own foul crimes, as a way to explain off the multiple DNA samples matching his, 
that police had collected from the scene of attacks over many years. That's the kind of person Delroy Easton Grant is, certainly someone who should never see the light of day again. It is reported that prison isn't easy for him, as due to the nature of his crimes, he's become a despised figure amongst other inmates, being physically attacked more than once, and he now watches his back where he's currently being held, in HMP Frankland in Durham, due to a reported contract on his life that was put out by a senior prison, Mr Big. Well, the heart absolutely bleeds there, doesn't it? This case, to me, seemed to be a logical choice for the episode to round off the third series of the show, as it's a grim and unreal tale, really, isn't it? It's a case that I've followed with interest over a long period of time, and I always plan to feature at some point on the show. I remember the appeals when he was at large and the national press coverage. I remember the Crime Watch appeals and reconstructions. And I remember, more than anything, the constant and absolute horror and anger that I felt to myself each time the case was featured in the news, knowing that there was a monster out there like that committing such depraved acts. It's quite a complex case to have researched and written, as you can probably tell by the length of it, but unlike many of the cases featured on the show, with this one, there's quite a multitude of information available for these purposes. So much so that, unbelievably, I had to condense much of it down to make the finale episode. Yes, yeah, really, it could have been a whole series, probably. For anyone interested in further reading about the case, a book entitled The Night Stalker, the moniker that Grant was given by the press and what he's perhaps more commonly known as, is a highly recommended but disturbing read about Grant's crimes. It was a major and invaluable source in creating the episode, and not only will a link to it and other texts and articles concerning the case be in the episode show notes, but he also reviewed the book some years ago for the True Crime Enthusiast WordPress blog, and a link to that review will be up there as well, so you can sort of have a read before you decide to get it. And that kind enthusiasts is a wrap for this episode, which I hope that you as ever have found interesting and informative, but also for this series of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. I, I know I say it each week, but at the end of the series, I'd just like to thank you all once again very deeply for joining me and for supporting and listening into the show throughout this series. You guys really do make the show, you know. It isn't anything without you. Well, it wouldn't exist. And I appreciate wholeheartedly all the feedback, the shares, the comments and the suggestions that you've all chipped in with through all of its 24 episodes. They've been my pleasure to bring to you. I have to say as well that I think this has been my favoured series of the show to have done to date. I've loved doing the researching and writing. And these tales have almost chosen themselves. I'm very, very happy with the order that they've flown in. Let's see how we get on with the next run, which will be coming soon after a little bit of a rest and a sharpening of the old pencil. And that's not a euphemism either, by the way. You will still be able to catch me during the series break through the show's social media pages because I won't go far. And by all means, get in touch if you have a case that you think would be a good choice for a show episode and you fancy researching and writing it up for a listener episode. Yes, they will be back next series. Also, just a reminder that if you do miss the show in the break and you fancy doing so, if you don't already, then you can always Patreon support the True Crime Enthusiast podcast for a rook of extra bonus episodes. The details are all there in the show notes this week. I'll now go and have a day or two off, 
then I'll be working harder than Barry White's belt on Series 4 and some other things as well. Just keep watching the social media. For the final time this series then, I've been Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys all good and safe times and I hope I shall catch you all again when I'm back very soon. And because it's the series finale, in what I think may become a tradition going forward, don't have nightmares guys, do sleep well. Thanks for joining me all and goodbye for now.